Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we hear how the latest wave of COVID-19 is impacting students and teachers around the state. Schools are doing extraordinary things to keep the doors open. And with the Colorado River facing record drought conditions, we speak with a new regional director of the federal agency that's most focused on it. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. This month's wave of COVID-19 cases, driven by the Omicron variant, is taking a toll on schools across the state. Students, teachers, and staff, already worn out from the past year of educating during a pandemic, are now facing half-empty classrooms and severe staffing shortages that have pushed some schools back into remote learning. At the same time, Colorado lawmakers are getting underway this month with a number of bills looking to address these and other education issues. We're joined now by Erica Meltzer, Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat Colorado, with an update on the state of education in this chapter of the pandemic. Erica, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. As we mentioned, Colorado is facing down a surge of COVID led by the Omicron variant. School districts, meanwhile, are facing some of the challenges they've faced for a while now, but it looks different. Uh, Could you bring us up to speed on where schools are in the pandemic? This This return from winter break has been really challenging. I think schools thought that they were dealing, we all thought that we were dealing with um, a lot of COVID in the fall with the Delta wave. With a return from winter break, there were sometimes schools operating with um, a quarter of their staff missing, sometimes even a half of their staff missing. Um, A lot of students were out, which presents a lot of challenges for continuity of learning. Even if you do have a teacher, do they teach the material to half the kids and then teach it again when the other kids come back? And um, schools in Colorado, for the most part, have been very determined to not do any kind of prolonged closure. We we did see some large districts in other parts of the country do a two or three week period of of remote learning to try and let um, Omicron kind of pass over before they brought students back. Colorado schools really wanted students in the classroom, but we have seen a lot of these sporadic closures where schools have found, we just don't have the staff to safely run the building. And so you are, we are seeing some of these short-term closures and short-term switches to remote learning related to that. Did the recent update to COVID guidance from the CDC change anything for schools? I think so. The, the change was um, from 10 days of isolation to five days of isolation um, if you tested positive. And then that also applied to close contacts who were quarantining. And a lot of school districts adopted the five-day guidance in the hopes that it would ease some of their staffing troubles. I'm, I'm sure it has helped to some degree, but one thing that we've heard from some teachers is that they actually feel you know, pressure to come back, even if they still feel sick. And of course, the CDC guidance is that if you actually feel sick, you should still be at home. And in some ways, I think there was so many cases of COVID or cases where people felt sick and maybe they couldn't get a test, but they, they needed to 
be home that there's still been quite a lot of, of staffing shortages. I, 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 I think the five days has helped people get back into the classroom sooner, um, but it hasn't completely, it hasn't completely made up for just the very large number of cases that we're seeing right now. Right. And we've seen, you know, here in northern Colorado in the Greeley-Evans district, more than 300 staff members tested positive during the month of January. And that forced some schools to go to remote learning just temporarily. Is that something you're seeing in other districts across Colorado? Absolutely. And the, in the Greeley-Evans district, they said, you know, we're not we're not doing school closures because we think that school isn't safe or because we think there's such high levels of transmission, which was sometimes the case earlier in the pandemic. But they're saying these are because of staffing shortages. If people are out sick, we just can't run the school. And there's there's been a substitute shortage um, the entire school year. A lot of school districts have increased substitute pay and tried to do other things. They've asked parents to come in and substitute but you know, substitute teachers themselves are also getting sick and not able to come into the classroom or they might decide, you know what, like right now is not actually a time that I want to be in that room. And they do have the option to not work on any given day. And so the combination of more staff absences and a harder time finding substitutes have just really put schools in a bind. Um, there was one district down in the Colorado Springs area that shared their substitute fill data. And the second week of January, they had fewer they had just about half of their substitute requests were filled. And, you know, and some of the stories you hear, because students are also out there combining classes, and that's how they're kind of keeping the building running. But a lot of teachers are saying, you know, this is coming at a, at a really high cost. It's, it's stressful because we're worried that by combining classes and, and doing all these things that one, we might be increasing transmission. And it's also an environment where learning isn't necessarily happening because now you've taken, you know, 10 second graders and 10 third graders who showed up today and sticking them in the same class with the first grade teacher because the second and third grade teachers are out sick. And yes, we're keeping the building open. Yes, we're allowing parents to go to work. But this is really not what education is supposed to be. We've been hearing stories from across the country, not just in Colorado, of, you know, even really high-level administrators coming in to do things like lunchroom monitoring and or mopping the floors even. Um, do you have a sense that districts have a more long-term strategy for shoring up against these staffing shortages? These are really long-term challenges. Um, we had seen um, fewer people entering the teaching profession and um, high rates of turnover even before the pandemic. And these are not problems that are limited to Colorado. And a lot of people feel like they're gonna to have to make the teaching profession a lot more attractive. And part of that's gonna be pay, but it also relates to, um, you know, to working conditions. A lot of people are very concerned about sort of the long-term staffing issues and what that means for schools. And I don't think, I don't think anyone has a great answer. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Chalkbeat Colorado Bureau Chief Erica Meltzer. I'm wondering how now compares to last semester um, or even a year ago when we saw a similar post-holiday wave kind of spurring a lot of districts to move back to remote. In the 2020-21 school year, we saw a lot of districts um, struggle to get students back into the classroom at the start of the school year. And then by Thanksgiving, we saw almost all of the large school districts, the large majority of Colorado students were learning remotely in through December. And then schools had a variety of approaches to coming back to winter break. Some waited until late January in the hopes that sort of a post-Christmas um, bump would pass. And some just brought students back. They said they've been out of the classroom too long. We need to get them back. 
that year we did start to see cases go down sort of through December and, and January. And in this case, it's coming after the winter break. And just the, the volume of cases is just dwarfs anything that we saw before. And I think there's a variety of reasons for that. Of course, we have been told that the Omicron variant is much more contagious. And you know, even people who are vaccinated, their illness might be mild, but they're still getting sick and having to go be out of the classroom. Um, but the other thing is, of course, we're, we're living a pretty normal life. People are going out, they're doing things. We don't really have um, any mitigation measures in place. And so we're, we are seeing just a very high volume of cases that if you look at the charts that the state puts out, it just completely dwarfs anything that we've experienced before. And, and so it's very hard to not have an impact um, to maybe answer the school's question a little more succinctly. I would say the big difference is this time we do have vaccination and we also have a real exhaustion with the idea of remote learning. And so schools will are doing extraordinary things to keep the doors open um, and to keep kids in the building that I think we didn't see in the 2020-21 school year. And I think people have, have mixed feelings about that. There's definitely teachers that I've talked to and students that I've talked to who don't feel safe in the building, who think that we should have gone remote for a few weeks. But, um, but there was just, I think, no appetite to do that. State epidemiologist Rachel Hurley, he um, said last week that she believes that the Omicron variant has peaked. And so hopefully we are on the downslope of this. But because the numbers were so high, the numbers continue to be very elevated. You know, I know schools were making a, an effort to do conscientious contact tracing. Is that still happening? We are seeing um, a lot of school districts um, send communication out to parents saying, we're not going to be doing contact tracing anymore. There's just too many cases. You can just assume on a day-to-day basis that you were probably in the same room with someone who had COVID because that's what those statistics tell us. Um, we're also seeing school districts that used to send an email for, for every known case, sending these batch emails at the end of the week. We had this many cases. Um, and so you're seeing a breakdown of some of the systems that we had in place earlier in the pandemic where there was some attempt to keep track of transmission, to control transmission. And, and now just the sheer numbers are making it very difficult to keep doing that. Let's switch gears and, and talk about the legislature. Um, I'm sure lawmakers are talking about a lot of what we have talked about so far. What has emerged as some of the education priorities that they're working on this session? Well, lawmakers are definitely concerned about both learning disruptions and the amount of um, burnout that teachers are experiencing. And the ways that the legislature can help with this are a bit limited, but um, we're going to be seeing some bills uh, to address staffing shortages, for example, making it easier, um, particularly in rural districts, for teachers um, to come out of retirement and, and work in the classroom without jeopardizing their para benefits. There's going to be a lot of conversation about how we restart the accountability system. This is the system um, where students take standardized tests and then schools are rated based on how students do on those tests. Um, teacher evaluations are also connected to these tests and a lot of um, district folks and teachers feel like this is unfair in this year that has still seen so many disruptions to to measure them based on how students do on those tests. So there's going to be a lot of conversation about how to change these systems and whether to change them short term with kind of an on-ramp back to 
the previous system or if we need, if this is the time to consider bigger changes. Republicans have um, really seized on the disruptions of remote learning and feel like the state government has been too deferential to districts and that parents don't have enough power that students have been done wrong and they're going to be pushing to put more money directly into the hands of parents. So for example, if they want to put their kid in tutoring or put them in some sort of enrichment activity that they've maybe missed out on because school was not operating in a normal way, that they would have the resources to do that. In a democratic controlled legislature, I don't expect that to go very far. Democrats have tended to view these proposals as like a backdoor voucher or voucher light um, system. And they feel like if we're not adequately funding our public schools, we can't be giving money to parents. Um, But I do expect that to maybe be a more active conversation than it's been in previous years due, due to all the disruptions that families have experienced. And then it's always a conversation, but I do expect um, some more conversation around school funding. Um, There's going to be a push just straight up for more school funding there. There's lawmakers saying, you know, we actually have the money this year to make up for some of the money that we've held back in previous years. and, And now is the time and we can find a way to make it sustainable. There's, almost certainly going to be a push to better fund special education. This has been a longstanding problem that the state covers just a small fraction of what it costs to educate students with special needs. And there's a push to to make that right. And then um, this is a little bit of a wonky topic, but it's actually pretty important for school funding. There's going to be a conversation about changing how we identify and count students in poverty, because typically we've measured that with the free school lunch um, applications. But during the pandemic, lunch is free for everyone. Families aren't filling out these applications. And if you were to look at the state count, it actually looks like there's fewer students in poverty when we know we know that the pandemic has had incredible economic effects on families. And so there's a conversation about changing the way we count those students and, and that will have implications for funding as well because districts get more money um, for students in poverty. Well, there's so much to keep an eye on. We'll be certainly checking back in with you uh, throughout the session. Erica Meltzer is Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. You'll find a link to her and her team's reporting in our post for today's show at KUNC.org. Erica, good to talk with you today. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. As the Colorado River shrinks, there's a lot on the line. Water that supplies 40 million people throughout the Southwest, plus farms, wildlife, and hydropower at the nation's largest reservoirs. A stretch of drought that's lasted more than two decades is continuing to take its toll on water supplies across the West. In a moment, we'll hear from the new regional director of the federal agency that deals the most with the Colorado River. But first, Cronkite News reporter Emma Van Denindy brings us to the fields of central Arizona, where farmers are grappling with federal water cutbacks. Nancy Kaywood walks through her alfalfa fields. Except it doesn't sound like it usually does. This is supposed to be alfalfa, and you can see the seed lines. So most of this is dry and crunchy. This is some alfalfa, and it's, it's so sparse. You're not going to see much alfalfa out here. It's been this way since the spring. 
Now in April, this field was beautiful green. This alfalfa was thick and um, then the water was shut off to us, unavailable to us. Kaywood relies on water from the San Carlos Reservoir near Globe, Arizona. But the water levels have dropped due to the drought. The reservoir can hold over a million acre feet of water, which is enough to supply more than a million homes for a year. Now, it holds less than 1% of that. Kaywood received a letter from the San Carlos Irrigation District in March. It said her water would be exhausted by April 1st, and due to the location of her farm, she has no access to other water. No water means no revenue for Kaywood. You know, you look at this, and this was supposed to be profit for us, and we can't do anything to help it along. We have no water available. Yeah, it's a desperate feeling because there's nothing we can do to make water come down that canal. Kaywood could level her fields and start over, but the water issue still remains. And she isn't the only one facing a similar situation. Chuck Cullum from the Central Arizona Project says the agricultural sector will be the most impacted from water shortages. So our farmers will receive one third of the water supply that we would normally make available to them. So they're going to be cut by two thirds in 2022. With no water in sight, Kaywood's worried about paying the water taxes on her farm. That's 22,000 a year. We're, re we're paying for a product we're not receiving. And it's, it's very aggravating and very painful. But for Kaywood, this is about more than just money. Her dad farmed this land, and so did her grandfather. Farming is in our blood. We want to farm. We want to hang on to this farm because it's been in our family for 90 years. Farming is our business. Kaywood's dry alfalfa fields don't just impact her. Pinal County relies on alfalfa for the economy. Alfalfa and other crops generate nearly 30% of their sales. It's a linchpin for the rest of the industry in Arizona. That's Chelsea McGuire with the Arizona Farm Bureau. They actually rank in the top 2% in the total value of agricultural sales. So they're in the top 2% of how much is being sold off of the farm in the entire nation. If you think about it, alfalfa is needed for lots of food products. A lot of people say, oh, you waste so much land growing alfalfa. And we're like, well, do you like milk? Do you like ice cream? Because alfalfa is milk chocolate, milk pudding, cheese. Alfalfa is dairy in the making. Right now, Kaywood is getting creative. Her son recently rented out additional land that receives some Central Arizona project water. That's where their current profit is coming from. But as McGuire says, that does not fix the long-term problem. The nature of farming is that it's not an industry that you can pivot to something different really, really quickly. Planting decisions happen 10, 12 months before you actually harvest a crop. We know we have to do something different. We just don't know what that is. Until farmers innovate further, Kaywood opens her shed door each morning. Feeling the same feelings as before. I just crossed the canals and I looked at them. I just burst into tears because that's our livelihood. And we have never, ever seen the canals shut down so early. She will continue to farm what is left of her field as she waits for water. I'm Emma Vandenindy. 
The federal agency that deals the most with the Colorado River is the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, and the agency has a new deputy regional director for the Lower Basin. David Arendt has worked for the Bureau for 20 years, most recently overseeing hydropower, and comes to the position at a critical time for the future of water for millions. He spoke with KUNC's Alex Hager about some of the biggest issues going forward. If you are hearing this interview and you do not live in the lower basin, you know, why should you care about what goes on down there? How are issues in different parts of the Colorado River Basin all connected? That's a good question. Uh, One of the big things to understand is that the Colorado River as a whole is is linked together, whether it's the upper Colorado Basin or the lower Colorado, Colorado Basin. So decisions and choices that are made in the lower Colorado Basin do affect the upper Colorado. And the same thing uh, vice versa, that decisions in Upper Colorado affect us. So we're looking at this from a, a total river prospect or from a, from a standpoint instead of Upper Colorado versus Lower Colorado. It's, we're looking at it in terms of the entire flow of the river. And I think that's, uh, it wasn't necessarily done as much in the past, but it's, it's become to the point where we're tied together and we're working on this together as we can. One thing that is on a lot of people's minds, and and this is certainly an area of expertise for you, is hydropower. What is your biggest worry as it looks like we could start losing some of it in some of the largest hydropower generation areas in the lower basin? Right. And and right now, every day is a new low for us. Uh, These levels have not been this way since the lake was filling. So we've had design studies and there was design operating characteristics when the units were built and they've been upgraded as time went on. Uh, And so we have expectations as to how the units are going to operate. But as the level goes down, we're into uncharted territory, if I may. And so we're learning day to day. What what are the effects? What are the efficiencies? Are they what we expected? Are we seeing more cavitation, you know, due to the the lower lake heads? Um, If it gets to a level where we hit what's called minimum power pool, where we can't generate, how do we still release that water? We still have the ability to release the water, but there's other issues looking out. Is the equipment that's designed for us to bypass the turbines, um, have we, is, is the maintenance complete? Do we have spare parts if there's a problem with it? Um, what other conditions or what other uh, aspects have we not looked at? And we're trying to figure that out and we're looking at this daily because every day is a whole new low for us now. When people hear about hydropower being at risk, you know, when we hear that every day is a whole new low, how worried should the general public really be? Does this feel like something that's within our power to stop and change? Or are we going to just have to learn to live with less hydropower because of less water? Well, we're looking at it we're doing everything we can right now already to try to prevent that. Uh, you know, like we say, with the 500,000 acre plan, with retaining more water into Lake Mead, um, bringing more water into Lake Powell, you know, to try and prevent from reaching a minimum power pool. We are seeing the lake levels go down, which decreases the capacity of our units because there's less head pressure. And uh, so our customers would then have to go and get power out on the market, you know, which would increase their costs. Um, so for the lower Colorado basin, we've talked with WAPA or Western area power administration, and we've had conversations with them and, and uh, there, there's not going to be a shortage of electricity. 
you know, it's not that's not one thing that we're concerned with right now or, or overly concerned with. WAPA thinks that we'll be fine. Um, Upper Colorado Basin, I believe, is more of the same, but, but I can't necessarily speak uh, completely to that. And as we head into future negotiations about how we're going to share water in a world where there's less to go around, what is the role of the Bureau of Reclamation and the federal government? So the Bureau of Reclamation, we're, we're working with the with our shareholders, our stakeholders, you know, the water customers and the states, you know, and we're working with them on, on a regular basis. And we're trying to work through as a team to, uh, you know, help mitigate the drought and to look at things, you know, going forward, what we can do to assist. And so part of our role is, 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 collaboration with ours it's not you know we're not telling people what to do but we're helping collaborate with them we're helping to um develop agreements with them uh because it 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 affects everybody and so the states can't just say we're not going to do anything because eventually they would run out of water potentially would run out of water i don't want to say that they're that that's going to happen because you know despite the drought and despite the lowering water levels, you know, we're doing things behind the scenes, you know, and working together with trying to maintain as much water in the reservoirs as we can and maintaining the water systems as best we can uh, going forward for everybody. Um, I know there's different projects going on with looking at desalinization, uh, reuse of water in uh, California with the recycling of the water, um, you know, and we're, we're looking at helping to support those as best we can. That was KUNC's Colorado River reporter Alex Hager talking to David Arend, a newly appointed director with the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation. This interview is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, produced by KUNC and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. You can find more of our coverage on water in the West at our website, KUNC.org. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll speak with Fort Collins author Deborah Winking about her recent book, Capable, which explores how parents and educators can empower children with disabilities to succeed despite the challenges they face. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Our digital editor is Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.